Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. I don't know whether I'd describe her as right-wing. Because she's so socially liberal, she's not a kind of hardcore social conservative. She's very pro-individual freedom. We might have our most libertarian prime minister ever. I think that's true. Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics. I'm Christopher Hope, The Telegraph's associate editor for politics. And today we have a smorgasbord of brilliant guests for you, dear listener. Later in the programme, we'll be talking from longtime Boris Johnson ally, Lord Udenay Lister, Sir Eddie Lister to you and me, to ask what's next in store for our former Prime Minister. And talk to Mark Littlewood, Director General of the Institute for Economic Affairs and a former Liberal Democrat, converted to a Conservative, just like our new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. But first, this week Liz Truss is showing the first rule of governing is never to waste a crisis. As she unveiled on Thursday lunchtime what in Whitehall is known as a bazooka of government spending to deal with the soaring and the crippling cost of energy. So I thought now was as good a time as any to invite on to the programme Lord Callanan, Martin Callanan, a junior minister in the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Department, the ministry behind the programme of announcements we heard on Thursday. Lord Kalnan, Martin Kalnan, a minister in the business department, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. My pleasure. What has Liz Truss announced? Well, she's announced that uh, today we're providing uh, immediate support to households and businesses to help them with the soaring energy prices and at the same time tackling the root cause of the issues in the UK energy market, um, which involves boosting supply and increasing our independence to try and make sure that we're never in this position again. How much will it cost? Uh, well, the, the Chancellor will, uh, has said that there will be you know, some fiscal loosening and uh, he will set out the fiscal position in his statement in the next couple of weeks. But ultimately, you know, ultimately well, there's, there's still a lot of uncertainty attached to the costs, which depend on a number of different factors. It depends on how energy prices move in the, uh, in the next few weeks, which depends on the war in Ukraine and various other factors. And of course, it's, uh, we've also announced the setting up of a new energy task force, which will renegotiate a number of the contracts that we have uh, in the UK with people like renewables, suppliers, etc., and with foreign suppliers to, to try and bring the cost down to, to the UK state. What's the worst case scenario you've read in, in, in Whitehall? Uh, there are so many different estimates, Chris. I will. I, Did you recognise two hundred million? I will leave the Chancellor to uh, to, to update <laughs> well, the nation on the, on his fiscal on his fiscal stance. I know this stuff. This stuff matters though because it's our, it's our children's children and their children paying this cost because it goes on debt. Do you see why that might give some people pause pause before doing this? Entirely understand that, but the, the reason that we haven't put a number on it is because there is still considerable uncertainty attached. 
And that uncertainty is caused because uh, the energy price is, is uh, linked to that in the European Union on the, on the continent of Europe um, through the interconnector, particularly with Germany. Do you not think that we are paying here, literally paying, for the mistakes that Germany made by being too reliant on Russian gas? No, I mean, we are in a, there is an integrated um, network in, in Europe. You know, we get some um, supplies through electricity and gas uh, interconnectors. Now, interestingly, uh, over the summer, the interconnectors have been used to help Germany and other states to build up their storage because we have 20% of the entire LNG uh, gasification plants in, in Europe. Um, so we've been helping our European friends to rebuild their stocks. Um, and how do, you know that, well, how do you know they'll repay that in the winter when it's cold, i.e. that gas will flow back through the interconnected to our market? Well, precisely because it's in their interests that there is an interdependence. So on renewable supplies, for instance, when it might not be windy in the UK, it might well be windy in Germany. And that's the whole principle of how interconnectors work, that uh, there is an interdependence and uh, electricity and gas can flow both ways depending on where needs are at a particular time. Liz Truss is not wasting this crisis and she's, she's now restarting fracking. We see from INEOS this lunchtime that they, they are saying they can start fracking quickly. They're applying for a licence. Are you happy with that? Were you a, are you a fracker, a pro-fracker or an anti-fracker like Kwasi Kwarteng used to be? It's not a question of being pro or anti. It's, you know, recognising the logistical difficulties that there are. You know, the UK is complicated geologically. We are much greater population density, for instance, than some parts of the US where this has been very successful. Um, so the point is, you know, there have been some problems with uh, with some of the, the three uh, hydraulic fractured wells that have taken place so far. They caused earth tremors, etc. Um, but, you know, we're in a crisis. We, we, need, to, we need to take uh, all of the action we can to, to increase supply. Uh, and therefore, we will need to, to do some more exploratory wells to check on the geological formations and just to make sure that the uh, the problems can be overcome before before we can get on with this at, at scale. And, and, and don't waste a crisis is, is one of the oldest mantras in, in politics. Here's a case in point. Um, did you think those risks are overblown from fracking? I mean, people involved with industry say how it's just nothing little more than a rock fall in a quarry, but it's overblown by its critics people concerned about planning issues and, and, the, and the environment. But are those, are those issues, those worries overblown, do you think? No, the, 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 the worries were real. Um, you know, there was damage caused to people's property by some of the tremors that were caused. Uh, the question is, you know, can you overcome those risks? Can it be done in a, in a safer manner, which is not causing damage to people's property? I mean, you know, to be fair, if it was if it was your house that was being shaken and causing cracks in your walls, then you would be concerned about it. So we need to, we need to make sure this can be done in a safe, in a safe manner. In uh, Liz Truss's statement to the House of Commons on Thursday morning, she did say there um, that, it, that you know, she wants to proceed with, with, with fracking or at least start it up again where there is support for it, i.e. local support. What kind of sums can you offer to local people to make them willing to accept fracking in their area? Well, it very much depend on the individual circumstances. The thing about fracking is that it needs large numbers of wells to, to go ahead and, and do it. It's not just one or two. There needs to be the appropriate planning processes put in place. And, um, you know, it's up to the companies who are responsible to take the local communities along with them. And if they can do that by providing them with discounts on their energy bills or what's called planning gain by new community facilities, etc., 
for communities to host the disruption that they would have to put up with on behalf of the rest of the country, then uh, then if, if it can be done uh, with the consent of, of local communities, then I'm sure that's something we would all, all welcome. When can the first fracking wells be, be producing gas, do you think? That very much depends on, on how the exploratory wells go and how the process proceeds. You know, the, at the moment, there is a potential there for uh, for shale gas, uh, but nobody really knows how much is available. Even experts, if you speak to, differ on their opinion about how much there is available, how easy it is to extract it. It's very different to, to the US position. We have different geological formations. Um, so it's really a question of uh, of drilling some more exploratory wells, checking it can be done in a safe manner, um, and seeing if any if any um, you know commercially viable quantities of gas can be retrieved. The the, the, the big concern, of course, for for those environmental activists is going to be um, the or the suspending or ending of these green levies. Will they come back, or are they gone for good now? Well, they're not being ended at the moment. They're levied on bills, and so the costs are being borne by the exchequer instead. And the interesting thing about them is that they've been reducing. It comprises a number of uh, elements. Some of them are what's called contracts for difference and renewable obligations contracts. And these are long-term contracts that were entered into, in some cases, decades ago to um, accelerate the rollout of renewable energy. And in the case of the later ones, the contracts for difference, because they are um, entered into at a strike price, then they're actually paying back into the system now because electricity prices are so high. So that's actually reducing people's bills. Also, it pays for the warm homes discount. It pays for the eco energy efficiency schemes, all of which are, are proceeding. So the, the money will be taken off bills directly, but it will still be funded by the exchequer. There's going to, going to be concern about your review of the net zero target by 2050. Is that now under threat? I know it's in, it's in law, isn't it? Of course, that can be repealed by any government with a big majority. But is that now under threat, this net zero target, the emissions target? No, we are still, no not at all. We are still committed to that target, as, as you correctly say, Chris. It's a, it's a legally binding target now. Frankly, even if you didn't support a net zero target, then uh, surely you still have to think that it's a good idea that we have more indigenous sources of clean, green power. I mean, you know, I used to be sceptical of offshore wind a few years ago, but you know, now that the cost has come down massively, now that huge quantities of it are available, now it's coming in at about a third of the cost of gas-generated power. Why would you not want to be in favour of it, even from you know, for a complete right right-wing free market uh, marketeer. Offshore wind is now a good thing because it's a third of the price of, of gas-generated power. This sp- money we're spending here, I mean, if I say it's £200 billion, you won't comment, but that's a figure out there that's been quoted because it's so open-ended. Are we not taking a huge gamble here on what President Putin does in Ukraine? And we're tying with our, our children and children's children to c- coping with the with the cost of that. For, for years, for years and years. Is that not the worry you've got there? Because you, someone like you in charge of, of policy in this area you should, should, you should be concerned about that. Uh, of course it's a worry, Chris, but what's the counter, counterfactual is that we do nothing and thousands of businesses go to the wall. You know, people uh, have to choose between heating and eating in their homes over the winter. You know, this is an unprecedented crisis ultimately caused by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. You know, I'm sure we all believe that we have to stand behind those brave Ukrainians who are paying with their lives at the moment because of the invasion of their country. And we are doing that. One of the consequences of that has been the the energy crisis. Putin is weaponizing uh, energy. So, 
we have to do both. We have to stick with our friends uh, in Ukraine, but we also have to take the unprecedented action that we are taking today in order to, uh, to make sure that people don't suffer too much in this country. But modern Canlan, Lord Canlan, wouldn't it be easier just to tax big energy companies? They're going to be announcing record profits every quarter. And every, t- every time that happens, Labour will jump on that and ask, why are you letting them get away with it? Well, we are taxing them, because is the answer to that uh, even question. Even more, even more, there's a well, point. I mean, they're already paying uh, excess uh, profits levy that the Chancellor announced earlier in the year. Uh, and those on North Sea producers already pay an increased rate of corporation tax uh, on top of that. You know, So a considerable portion of their profits is already being uh, taxed. Uh, and then we, we've also got to bear in mind that, you know, we want lots more investment in new nuclear, in new renewables, in new oil and gas uh, exploration and licensing in the North Sea. This all requires billions of pounds worth of investment uh, as well. And we need those same, same companies to provide that uh, investment. Well, Lord Canland, uh, a business minister on a busy day. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, Dan Lyon from Whitehall on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you so much, Martin. No problem. Thanks, Chris. Martin Kalnan, Lord Kalnan there. Now, much was made in the seemingly never-ending Tory leadership campaign of Liz Truss's dark past as a Lib Dem teen. But is that actually something that the new PM should be embarrassed about and indeed should worry Conservatives? Well, Mark Littlewood, who now is the director of the Thatcherite think tank, the IEA, doesn't think so. And well, he might because he was formerly the director of communications at the Liberal Democrats and was at university with Liz Truss. So I asked Mark Littlewood to join me at my usual stool in the Red Lion pub to explain his reasoning. Mark Littlewood, director general of the Institute for Economic Affairs. Welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Good to be with you. Now, you're a former Liberal Democrats senior player, a director of communications. You were in the Liberal Democrats with Liz Truss. Should Tories trust Liz Truss? You should definitely trust her. If you're really only worried about what colour of rosette somebody wore at a different time in their life, well, she might make you nervous. But she is an incredibly consistent person. And I met her nearly 30 years ago at Oxford University, where we were both members of the Oxford University Liberal Democrats. But her underlying philosophy hasn't changed much since then. Some of her policy positions have, but her underlying philosophy has not. And what is that philosophy? She is highly sceptical about big government vested interests and the power of the establishment. She believes individual men and women should have more liberty over their own choices in lives and more money in their own pockets. And I think she thought that... It's almost a pure Brexit position, a Tory Brexit position. Yeah, I mean, I guess you'd probably call it in sort of philosophical terms, classical liberalism, neoliberalism. She applies it both to the economic and the sort of personal freedom sphere. And I think she's been very consistent there as a philosophy. Yeah, she's changed policy positions. Mm. But I rather like people to have a consistent philosophy and apply it to different policy positions as circumstances change. But she voted Remain. That's, That's the problem with that. She did vote Remain, and I can remember um, having a brief conversation with her after she had decided to go on the Remain side in the referendum. And if I recall correctly, I didn't take a note of the meeting, but she had a rather agonised look on her face. I don't think this was an automatic decision for her. And in essence, her justification was that she feared that the juice would not be worth the squeeze, that uh, if we did vote leave, it would be years of turmoil and constitutional wrangling. But she wasn't enthusiastic about the Remain campaign. She could definitely see the case for leave. 
And unlike many others who are on the main campaign, as soon as the referendum result was in, done, decision made, let's get on with it. No sort of trying to win so a second So there's, no, there's no embarrassment then about being a Lib Dem, is your position. I mean, you're one yourself. Yeah. Are you embarrassed about it because you run a fat right think tank now? Yeah, I mean, well, you're right, Chopper. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm only defending her because I've gone through very much the same political journey, <laughs> right? No, I mean, I think it's... Uh, I mean, you're going way back, obviously, for the Lib Dems, rather more recently for Remain versus Leave. But uh, I don't think she should run away from it. It's not as if... In, I think she joined the Tories in 1996. It's not as if she read a book in 1996 that suddenly made her change all of her minds on, mm. on, on everything. I'm told that actually increasing numbers of Liberal Democrats to her in the 1990s said, aren't you a bit more of a Tory than a Liberal <laughs> Democrat? So they might have pushed her away in that direction. But... Overall attitudes towards individual freedom, yep. scepticism about the state, getting government off your back, yep. that's been pretty consistent. So she'll be unhappy or uncomfortable about hosing tens of billions of our children's inheritance as a problem with energy bills. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, I'm, I feel a bit disappointed about this. I was sort of hoping her first big announcement would be some grand liberalising measure, not spending 150 billion quid fixing prices. I mean, in the essentially, market. what she's doing is buying herself. A honeymoon. It will, she'll, she'll have an uptick of five points by the weekend. Tax cuts may give her more in two weeks' time. And then she has two or three months to sort herself out, basically. I, I, I suppose that's about right. My worry is, OK, and one sort of getting into the finer weeds of this energy package... I still think, I mean, I, I'm not going so far as to say the government should not intervene at all to help this. I, I think there should be a package of measures to ameliorate and mitigate it. Otherwise, people are literally going to freeze to death this winter. That can't be allowed to happen. But I, I think they could have done this in a rather more marketized direction. Allow the price to float on the market and then find mechanisms of getting cash to people. Once you start fixing prices, you're going to get overconsumption. Uh, and we're on the hook for Germany's price. Yeah, exactly. Germany's price is our price now, which yeah. through the interconnectors. Should we, should we shut the interconnectors? I don't know about that. I mean, I think you're basically right. She's bought herself some time. If you were going to make the case for the defence of this big first move by trust from a free market perspective, you could say which wouldn't be unreasonable. The energy market is so broken, it's not really a market. So you need to come in and sort of fix it and buy yourself, whether it's going to be six months or 12 months. But in that period of time, you need to make the changes to bring yeah. the supply side okay. on stream. And you know, I hope it's that. But I want to hear a bit more about how we never get back to this again. You mentioned you, you knew this just at university. Well, what was she like there? Um, pretty Big, sim- big boozer? Um, she a big boozer, probably um, given that she's, you know, a rather diminutive woman, probably for her size. Um, she liked to drink. She was great fun to be with. I do remember, um, you know, if you were going to a dinner or a debate or something, if, if Liz Truss was there, that was always going to liven up the room. And one thing I do recall about her, and this certainly hasn't changed, at least not in her private one-to-one decisions, she leaves you in no doubt what she thinks about something or indeed about someone. And most politicians or wannabe politicians who were at Oxford University back in the day with Liz and I, and certainly in the modern politics around Westminster here, Chris, you'll know, hold their cards pretty mm. close to their chest. They pretend to agree with everyone. They pretend to like everyone. Well, she has clarity of thought. She, she said no on yeah. things in PMQs this week, no to windfall tax. And it was like a breath of fresh air, like a cold shower drenches in Westminster to finally get an answer from, a, from the Prime Minister. Yeah, unbelievably radical that Prime Minister's <laughs> questions might actually involve the Prime Minister giving some answers. Well, what would you, if you had said 
to Liz, took her to one side in Oxford Bar and said, Liz, you know, one day you're going to be Prime Minister. What would she have said back to you? I think she probably would have said, I quite probably will be, yeah. <laughs> she had that intention. Um, I, I don't think it was quite that she'd written everything on the back of, uh, back of an envelope or back of a fag packet, no. as Michael Heseltine was apparently planned out each year of it. Yes. But she was clearly politically ambitious. Although, intriguingly, I was trying to find any other example of a modern politician from Oxford University who fits this bill. She was not involved in the Oxford Union Debating Society. Now, quite often people who go on to become Prime Minister from Oxford aren't involved in politics at all. Harold Wilson just studied. Theresa May, I don't think, was particularly involved in politics, nor Cameron. But those who go on, having been active in politics, tend to have run for President of the Oxford Union or try to get there. I don't remember Liz Truss ever setting foot in the Oxford That's quite healthy, isn't it? I think it's very healthy. I I think, I'm putting words in her mouth here, she would have found it a slightly sort of stuffy, rather establishment, tedious, slapping everybody on their back. She was more involved in in the kind of practical political side. Very, very unusual. Do you think we finally have a right-wing Tory Prime Minister? The first one since Thatcher. She's, I don't know whether I'd describe her as right-wing, and, you know, sorry to be boring on this point, but it's because she's so socially liberal. She's not a kind of hardcore social conservative. She's very pro-individual freedom. We might have our most libertarian prime minister ever. I think that's true. And I was reflecting after hearing her first PMQs. When was the last time a Conservative Prime Minister stood at the dispatch box and made a straightforward case for tax cuts? And I'm pretty sure that would have been Margaret Thatcher in 1990, actually. So reasons to be cheerful for the IEA. Reasons to be cheerful. I did say to a Conservative MP uh, the other day, I can't work out whether these are the bleakest of times or the most exciting of times. And he said that they are both. And I suspect he's probably right. Bleak, but exciting. <laughs> well, Mark Little, you wrote a great piece for the Telegraph of the weekend about why my old friend Liz Truss will be the most radical British Prime Minister in a century. Any further to add to that? What would you say? What can you see apart from energy bills? Is one, but it's the tax. Is, is uh, the, the big thing that I'm looking for with my Institute of Economic Affairs uh, hat on, uh, Chopper, is the emergency budget. I, I think I think it's be slated yeah. for late September. Fiscal. Uh, the fiscal event, whatever yes, you want to call not, it. Not the budget, Mark. Um, okay, the fiscal event, uh, but it, to all intents and purposes, a budget. Now, I am hoping that will be the most radical tax cutting budget since Lawson, and I think it will be. That means income tax. Uh, I, but potentially income tax, I think there will be a lot of tax. I think VAT will go down, which is interestingly a counter-inflationary measure as well, right? Prices will 5%? Tend to I mean, I'm asking for 10%, but it's my job to always ask the impossible. <laughs> if they meet me halfway, I'll be pleased. But if the overall burden of tax really comes down then, she would have changed the trajectory it's of It's a massive gamble on future borrowing, on the cost we're, we're levelling on generations in the future. Yep. If it comes off, she wins the next election. If it fails, she loses it. Yeah, I, I think... agree? Oh, that's no doubt, no doubt about that. She went on during this Conservative leadership campaign about delivery, delivery, delivery. I don't know whether I heard her mention the word delivery more than I heard Rishi Sunak mention that his mother was a pharmacist. Pretty close call. <laughs> but if the Conservative Party wanted a safe pair of hands, we're not going to gamble, steady as she goes, they picked the wrong person. I think she's likely to take quite a lot of dramatic gambles to be, as I said, radical... I think it will work, because I think she's broadly got the right prescriptions. But I don't think she's going to be cautious. She's got 700 days until the next election. She can't take this slow and steady. And I think that's reflected in the makeup of her cabinet, in which it's not voices from all sections and all factions of the party. These are people who are absolutely on point with Well, there the is project. no time for the, the, the dissent. There's hit, no time. Hit the ground sprinting. It's a five-year government in two years, I think. Exactly right. Mark Littlewood, the IEA's Director General, thank you for joining us this week again on Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Grace to be with you. 
Right, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking about Boris Johnson's legacy with Lord Lister, one of the few people in politics who knows him best, and finding out why new Tory MP Laura Farris resigned over the summer from a committee investigating whether Mr Johnson lied to Parliament over the extent of parties in Downing Street. That's right after this. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine the latest in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, it's not easy being a former Prime Minister. Just ask David Cameron. But some make a good go of it. Theresa May's made millions for herself in the three years since resigning as Prime Minister. And what are the plans for Boris Johnson? Well, first, he may want to set right the view of his legacy. And one person who can help with that is Lord Udney Lister. Eddie Lister, his former senior advisor in Downing Street, an old pal who goes back to City Hall when Boris Johnson was the mayor there. Eddie Lister, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Lord Udney Lister, Eddie Lister, former senior advisor Boris Johnson, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thank you. 72 hours ago, Boris Johnson was Prime Minister. He's now gone barely three years after being elected. Was he a failure? No, not at all, not at all. And I think the history books are going to be much kinder to him mm. than, if you'll excuse me saying so, your colleagues are, are, are being to him at the moment. He, he came in with a really difficult mandate, and I was there right from the beginning. Mm. I suppose you could say I was there at the beginning and there at the end, but mm. Mm. Um, at the beginning... Because you were chief advisor, you were senior advisor. Uh, senior advisor, and then I acted up as um, chief of staff for mm. a period of time as well. He came in with a clear mandate to get Brexit done. Nobody realised just how hard that was going to be. MPs were blocking him every step of the way. There was a big lobby in Parliament, and both in the Lords and in the Commons, who were determined to stop Brexit happening. Mm. It was a really bitter period, from when he got elected in, in the end of July mm. in 2019... Yeah to when he managed to call no. an election. Yes. It was fighting in the trenches. And Half the enemy was in the own, your own party. I think the, all of the well, enemy was the, in our own party, <laughs> actually. Well, the ones that counted. The one that counted. I mean, I'm afraid I grew to hate a lot of MPs over that period. Yes. Uh, Have probably. you made friends yet with, with, with um, some of them, Dominic Grieve, <laughs> David Gore? I'm better now with them all. You're better better now. now with them all. But it was hard. Mm. So he fought that through. And I can't stress how much that was a personal thing. He drove it through a system that didn't want him to deliver it. His next great um, challenge was dealing with Jeremy Corbyn, who he defeated. And there was a really, real, really high risk that Jeremy Corbyn could have won that. And we would have had the most extreme left-wing government we've ever had. He managed to defeat him. 
and defeated him very successfully. Do you think a different leader wouldn't have beaten Corbyn in 2019? I think a different leader could have failed. Jeremy Hunt, for example. Yes, I, I genuinely do. Because Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, he did much better than people expected. His publicity was good. He fought a good campaign. I mean, at the end of the day, the British public saw why they shouldn't vote for him. But it was a pretty, you know, it was a pretty tough fight. And I think to have Boris leading that was absolutely perfect. And then, of course, a bit of normality arrived. We, we had about a, a month after the election. Um, when we thought, oh, we're going to do some domestic mm. politics. He went on holiday. Everybody had holiday. <laughs> and in fact, um, I remember going with him to um, Oman to the funeral of the, the, the ruler. ruler. And you heard noises about some, 20, Ill, 20. some problem in China with some illness of some sort. We it? didn't really know what any of that no. was. And then, of course, it hit. And That's we COVID. Had, had the whole sort of... The early days of COVID, which were really hard because the advice was very confusing. Um, nobody really knew anything. One minute it was, well, herd immunity is the answer. The next mm. minute, no, the hospitals will be overrun. Next minute, what are we going to do? Going Where to were you on everything. this? You see lots of rewriting of history, don't you, in the leadership I, campaign. Were you arguing against lockdowns? No, against- not at the beginning. I, I argued against it later on, but mm. not at the beginning. You must remember back in in that sort of February-March period, we were all looking at the Italian health system, which is not a bad health system at all. It was overwhelmed, wasn't it? And it was collapsing. Mm -hmm. And it was, you you remember what those pictures Mm, of, of coffins piled up, that was pretty frightening stuff. And we knew that that would be the the outcome for the NHS if we weren't Mm. careful. So everybody knew that. He knew that. But I do remember, and it was probably the most important meeting that ever took place there, when he had a meeting with Chris Whitty, who was the chief medical officer, and Patrick Valance, who was the chief scientific officer. And he asked them what the answer was, and Patrick Valance said, the answer is vaccination. It's the only way out of this. We've got to get vaccinations. So he said, I want those. Who can make them? And Patrick Valance, um, I think it was Patrick Valance, I may be doing Chris Whitty a disservice at this point, but whichever one of it was said there's about half a dozen companies that can do this. He said, who are they? And I want the vaccines from them. And he was determined Mm. to get those vaccines. And he forced through, against everybody's wishes, the normal procurement processes. It was get them at any cost. And to be fair, Rishi Sunak, who was the Chancellor, fully supported him on this because if you spent an extra million or two on vaccines, it was nothing compared to the damage that was being done to the economy. So he had to get those vaccines. So it was very much, who can do it? Will you give it to us? Will you give it to us first? Um, How soon can you do it? And the orders were placed. That was long before Europe or anybody else placed orders because they went through the normal processes that you normally do with procurement, who's going to give me the best price and all that kind of business. He went for it. We just went for it. And he got those. And he has to have personal credit. So on the credit side, you have that, you have bidding Corbyn, you have a Brexit. And then the next big one was, of course, Ukraine. Mm. Because there's no doubt about it. If he hadn't been as robust as he was... I am not sure Europe would have come to the table quite as quickly in opposing Putin. I think he actually also, to a large extent, personally can take the credit for almost shaming the Americans to come to the table quickly. Um, Those are four big things, aren't they? He really did drive this. Now, I think when the history books are written, he will get the credit for these things, and he rightly should do. 
and that's just two and a half years in to what should be a five-year government, and he's out. Yes. Why? Looking back, um, I think he knew, and we all certainly knew, that they were going to come for him. He had made Who's some they? big end. Well, I'll come mm, to that. Okay. I think they is a, there's a quite a few theys. <laughs> there were those who were supporters of Theresa May, who very much blamed him for bringing her down. There was those who still believed in Remain um, and blamed him for Brexit. Then I'm afraid you've always got people in Parliament who you've either overlooked for promotion or you've sacked. The bitter. Uh, the, uh... And you've always got them. <laughs> so that's another big group. And then probably the biggest thing that brought him down was he's not, he's not a member of the club. He has never spent his days sitting in the tea rooms, drinking tea with MPs, going to the bar, having a drink. That is not him. By the way, that wasn't Margaret Thatcher either. She wouldn't, she wouldn't play that game. Mm. Um, and so he never really had a hinterland of support. I mean, there were people who supported him and were very loyal to him, but there was a number there who he didn't really know and they didn't know him. And I think the trouble was, this is my personal opinion, that with COVID, all these MPs, particularly new ones, got elected in, in the end of 2019. They barely knew him either. They didn't know him. They all sat at home during COVID. M- watching Twitter. Twitter. I'm afraid that's it. <laughs> and I, Put I, the bloody phone down, Eddie. I mean, you know, it's, and I think they were listening to all the wrong people. And I think... Don't get me wrong, I think we've ended up in a good place with, with Liz Truss as Prime Minister. I think that's good news. But it should have been him, and he should still be there. And I still think he's one of the most formidable politicians of our generation. This may be so. Don't you think he was brought down by his own actions? I mean, Partygate, the example wasn't set, was it? I mean, no. You had gone by then, hadn't you? No, no, well, one or two of them took place when I was still there. Did you there. feel any charge uh, on you? No, bit, no, I don't. Because, well, them. I mean, I didn't go to them, but I mean... Um, he, you must remember that some of these parties were not parties as you and I would know them, or indeed any of your listeners are going to know them. I mean, they were largely the press office having a drink at five o'clock on a Friday night. Um, they with worked all 12 the hour people, days. Um, who had been there all week. They weren't working from home. They were working from the office. This was almost their, their social life, their home life. Everything was there in the office, so they have a drink with their friends. I wouldn't call that a party. There were a couple of leaving events. He did go to, uh, I can't remember now which ones he went to. He went to a couple anyway, didn't he, for which he's apologised. But he never felt that that was something that was particularly wrong. I don't think it really registered with him. That it was a, a big issue. Mm. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, his, his office did mishandle it when, when, when it all came out. And I think if they handled that a little bit differently, maybe things would have been different. But... There was that, and then unfortunately there was the Chris Pincher affair, which was also a very sad affair. Um, for was that enough to bring him down, given the scale of the achievement? It, it probably didn't register with him because he wasn't staying at home like everyone else was. I mean, he wasn't if he wasn't being well, don't forget, affected he'd, by the rules. He'd he almost been killed by this blasted thing. Um, everybody forgets this, um, and he was working from that from that building, and everybody who was there were working very long hours. I mean. People weren't really working from home. They were working there in the office um, day in, day out. So I just don't think it registered. It, it should have done, and I'm not saying it was right. I'm not yeah. excusing it. I'm just simply saying I don't think it was quite the crime everybody wants to make it. 
What's he doing now? Have you talked to him since he, he stood down on Monday? No, I was there on Monday when he... Yeah, I saw you in gave, the crowd. Yeah, I, I couldn't say it. was such a crowd there, wasn't yeah. it? And Some it tears was, were shed. Yes, and it was very emotional, especially for people like me who, uh, who'd been there and clapped him in when he arrived. Predating him back to we, City Hall Now days. we're sort of seeing yeah. him go. And there was a lot of MPs Well, what's next? He's, he's working hard on his, his Shakespeare biography. I mean, his life has turned from, you know, from comedy to tragedy. Will it become a heroic tale of, of redemption? I think what he'll do now is, um, and he's said it himself, he's got to put hay in the loft. Mm. Um, so he's, he's going to do some writing. He's going to make some speeches. He's a great writer. In fact, I always think that he actually writes better than he, than he speaks. A lot, um, a lot of us do. Uh, <laughs> he's really good. Um, so he'll do that for a while. And I think in, he's already said he will fully support Liz Truss. And I think he'll take it quietly for a little while. And then we'll see what happens. And what, what, is, what does we'll see mean for you, Eddie Lister? Will he run for a northern seat? He may well, he may well lose his seat in Uxbridge and West Ryslip at next election. Labour after it. 7,000 majority there. That's under threat, I think, in London nowadays. I don't know. Um, firstly, I'm not, I, I don't know anything about his, his parliamentary seat. But I would have thought he'd be, you know, people rather like having a, yes. a, a, somebody, senior, a, a Tory. senior Tory and yes. a, a big name. Who can open doors. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of advantages to Uxbridge yes. having somebody like him, and they should be rather proud of him. I don't know what he's going to do. I, I doubt if he really knows what he's going to do. He's still absorbing it all. Is he in um, shock? Shock, I'm not sure. I think the shock is probably wearing off now. I think he's cross that he wasn't able to complete yeah. it. Um, and... And I think he's very sad. And I think all of us who, who worked with him are rather sad for him as well. And they, those who support him are sad, I think. I think there's a, there's a degree of sadness and melancholy, melancholy about um, his departure I think I think... I just don't think the Conservative Party can go on sacking Prime Ministers in the way they have done. It just can't go on. And just quickly on Liz Truss, what's your advice to her? Well, I, I, I don't think anybody would envy her, her inbox. It's, it's frightening. She's got some really tough tough decisions to make it's going to be really hard she's going to be on a war footing now for for quite a while she's she's got to deal with the cost of living crisis she's made firm commitments on tax cuts i think she has the ability to change the direction in the uk i think she has the ability to really invigorate the economy and i think if she also does all of that and as she's promised liberalize the city liberalize business i think we'll get through this and i think she's the best leader we can have oh well other than, of course, Boris of Johnson, course. who I would have preferred. But no, she's a good choice. Well, Eddie Lister, Lord Udney Lister, former senior advisor Boris Johnson, thanks for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics. Thank you. Thank you very much. Lord Lister there. Now, as you know, Boris Johnson has quit as Prime Minister, despite winning a major landslide in 2019. And part of that, well, part of that was over claims and suggestions from his critics that he misled Parliament over the extent of parties in Downing Street. Now, before he resigned, a committee was established called the Privileges Committee to examine whether the PM misled Parliament or whether he intentionally misled Parliament. The MPs looking at that are on this so-called Privileges Committee. And early this summer, one member of that committee resigned without any explanation. And she's here now in the Red Lion pub to tell us why. 
Laura Farris, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Thanks, Chris. Now, you made some noise at this, this summer because you're, you're a new MP. You're making your career as a Tory MP for Newbury. You're also on this Privileges Committee, which is doing uh, this investigation to whether Boris Johnson misled or deliberately misled Parliament. And you stood down from that committee. Why did you do that? Well, I stood down in July, shortly after Boris Johnson resigned as Prime Minister, because... I thought that the context had fundamentally changed, actually. I really considered whether I thought it was proportionate use of my time to spend the next three or four months dealing with, in a way, a historic matter when there were so many pressing issues facing my constituents. And as you say, I'm still a new MP, so... And you're you're making your way in Parliament, and it was, uh, you were trying to help out the whips, I'll go on that committee, and then it became this sort of charged prosecution of the now ex-Prime Minister. I think it was a difficult task, actually. Well, I know the committee is still going. I think it was a very difficult, very high-pressure task. Which you may <coughs> maybe not have signed up to when it all started out. When did you join the committee? I joined in March, so the month before the matter was referred. Mm. And it, it, it is true to say, of course, I hadn't expected. I mean, the, the committee does people sort of abusing their postage stamp allowances, typically. Yes. In fact, I'll be totally honest with you, I didn't even know I was on the Privileges Committee. I knew I joined the Standards Committee. And then when this was referred, they said, oh, the Privileges Committee is reserved for particular matters that involve, you know, high-level ministers, and it removes the lay members, it's just the MPs. Mm -hmm. So when when the matter was first before the House, I didn't actually know that I was going to be... (laughs) You thought, what what am I getting myself into? What's your view on the committee? It was called a kangaroo court, or is that an unfair description? um... I think it is an unfair description. It is also, if I, you know, I'm... It was probably good to have this opportunity. I think it is also a tremendous ask of a group of MPs, not all of whom are lawyers, to undertake a task that is quasi-judicial. I mean, they are, they, they are advised by a retired Court of Appeal judge. But I didn't think, whatever their political persuasion actually, that they were approaching it with a closed mind. The only thing... The MPs that, on the committee. Yeah, and, and, and they were heavily guided. Um, by? But by, by the advisers to the committee. Yeah. Um, you know, they were yeah. taking instruction in the way I think people would think was appropriate. I think, I think, I suppose the only thing that I have to concede is that when I read Lord Panic's opinion, I recognised some of the things that I had raised on the committee, and perhaps that exposes you know because I would some occasionally on oh, not everything. Are you that a he lawyer? Said. Not a lawyer? Yes, I'm a barrister. You're a barrister. Yes. So perhaps you were picked for that reason. I mean, you say there's no legal. You have a history. I, well, yes, yes. Um, so, for example, I'll give you an example. The issue of anonymity was one that... For I, witnesses? Yeah. I thought that was not a tenable suggestion. Because the because PM, Boris Johnson, couldn't cross-examine the evidence, not knowing where it came from. So there's two points, really. I mean, it is a parliamentary committee, but it is, it is, it is a quasi-judicial exercise. The principle of open justice is fundamental. Actually, so is his right to a fair trial. And I know I'm using trial in quite a <laughs> grand way because it's just a group of MPs, but it's true, it is a semi-trial. And the circumstances in ordinary courts where anonymity would be given to a witness are unbelievably restricted. Yes, I mean, cases, well, you know. that's only. I mean, national security is where a witness may be, and in, for the purposes of media reporting, well, rape. So, of course, we're not in any anything like that kind of terrain. And then the second point, which again, there's no criticism because it's it's this was really my area of law, and it's commonly misused, but there's quite a lot of talk of whistleblowers. And a whistleblower isn't a whistleblower because they say they're a whistleblower. They have to satisfy the legal threshold at Section 1 of the Public Interest Disclosure Act, and they have to show that they reasonably believe what they're saying is true and that they don't have 
they're not, there's no personal gain from what they're saying. In other words, that they don't have an axe to grind. And in my experience of the cases I worked on, the most common reason why a whistleblowing claim failed is because the ex-employee did have an axe to grind. And that would. And you couldn't guarantee that isn't the case. And you wouldn't well, know you, that. You, it, it, imperative that the person is cross-examined, everything about them is known. And we know that there are people who worked at Number 10 Downing Street who left with bad blood. I mean, some of them are very famous. So things like that, I think I have to say, when I read it, I'd said it. And I, I can't. I can't deny that. It, it, where it's being handled, I mean, Harriet Harman came under, under some fire from some tweets she did in a, April. So I thought she was... I thought she was really being even-handed on the committee, as far as you know? I thought she was being really even-handed. And, and, I, and I also thought on that point... So I did make that point. It's true, though, people who disagreed with the anonymity issue because they thought people should be encouraged to, uh, to come forward if they felt comfortable. And there was a disagreement... And it's not too late for the committee to correct that, by the way. I mean, they haven't started taking evidence, but I can't, I can't see any circumstances where you wouldn't have full transparency. And I think probably the same over the motion itself. I mean, it wasn't... This is not something that Harry... The motion said in, didn't say intentionally or deliberately misled. It said misled, didn't it? And that's a part of the problem. But it, I think it would be right to say that when the committee convened, we understood ourselves to be de- dealing with whether he'd knowingly misled the House. And that was consistent. If you look in Hansard, I mean, you can just get this on Google... If you look at what was said in that debate, what Keir Starmer said and what Chris Bryant said, it wasn't, it's not really in dispute that things were said which transpired to be factually inaccurate. What's in dispute is whether that was done with mens rea, with intent. The reason why that was so material at the outset was because the ministerial code says that if a minister knowingly misleads, it's a resignation offence. So that's what I mean about the context changing, I suppose, when he was no longer the Prime Minister. Then, so, first of all, we're not engaging so the Minister. So you left because you weren't all. certain he would get a fair trial. That's what. I that not, 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 not that, not that, not that. I, I left because I, I had understood that we were really dealing with this issue of the Ministerial Code. And, of course, he's no longer the Prime Minister, so the Ministerial Code doesn't apply. That doesn't mean I'm not undermining the committee. I, I'm not, I feel like I don't want to backseat drive. But in some ways, I think almost there is a, a sensible argument that the House should be asked again what its view is of this issue because... It, now he's gone. Well, it, it was in the, the House's contemplation that, that the, the issue was whether the Prime Minister had, just to use the vernacular, had lied in the House. And if they're not going to be making an assessment of that particular question, I think the House has to be asked whether or not... You know, and, and should this inquiry carry on? Should Partygate, the Partygate inquiry carry on, as it's known? I'm not going to sort of poke my nose in because they're having meetings now, but I think I've expressed, you know, one of the things... And, I, you know, I, I will stick up for the members because I didn't, I didn't think that they were sort of driving it towards an outcome. And I also think it was a much bigger task than that committee would typically be asked to do. So they were, you know, as I say, they normally don't do things that are... Isn't the Times led all lie now? He's gone? He's still that's what I mean about referring it back to the House. Yeah, things you know, have there changed. Be, well, yeah, I mean, I think that you could... You, could you, you, you know, if you know that if there was a debate, Chris, people would be making arguments, maybe different, argu- different arguments, but I think it may be right that there is room for the House to consider the issue again before it goes to the next stage. Well, Laura Farrell, thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics, and we'll wait to see what if the House of Commons listens to your advice. Thank you. Thank you. Laura Farris there. Now, let me know what you think of what my guest said this week. Email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet us, we're at chopperspodcast. And for more on Liz Truss, our new Prime Minister, as she starts her first weekend running the country, please sign up to my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. That brings you the best Westminster insights straight into your email inbox every weekday. The link to that is in the show notes to this episode. We'll also put a link to Mark Littlewood's excellent article 
about why it's okay that Liz Truss used to be a Lib Dem in those show notes. And be sure to check out my weekly Peterborough Diary column out at 7pm on Fridays on the website and in Saturday's Daily Telegraph. So thank you again to my guests this week, Lord Calnan, Mark Littlewood, Lord Lister and Laura Farris. Thank you as ever to the brilliant team of producers behind this podcast, Giles Gear and Louisa Wells. Thank you to our special helper this week, Ruth Stainer. And thank you to you, well, for listening. Remember, if you can, please do buy a copy of The Daily Telegraph. I know you won't regret it. Until next time, though, cheerio.